0: Okay, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Genesis 2, we're wrapping up the chapter. I feel like we're flying through this book. Maybe you guys don't feel that way. (laughs) Uh, We're looking, yeah, as I said in the last section of chapter 2, and last week we saw the creation of the Garden of Eden. Uh, And we saw how the Garden of Eden was reflected throughout the whole of Scripture. We saw how it was reflected through the tabernacle, um, but ultimately is reflected through uh, Jesus as He brings us into the new creation. We see in the book of Revelation, the last chapter, what do we find? The tree of life. We see that there is this continuity, that Eden is this uh, dwelling place for God and man, and this place where material and spiritual reality meet. But today, uh, we're going to be looking more in depth into the creation of mankind, into the creation of uh, men and women, this first human community, and because of that, I'm going to title my message today, uh, The Foundation of Marriage. The Foundation of Marriage. Now, the first human community was a household. It was a family, it was a marriage, a design of God which has stood the test of time throughout history and is the normal state of human affairs within the church. Uh, While marriage has stood the test of time, don't mistake me for saying that it is the norm. Marriage is not the norm across all of human history. In fact, marriage is not the norm in the way that we practice it um, today in the church uh, throughout history. And you can see... uh, you only have to read like a couple of ancient books and you're like, well, that is one messed up society. Because uh, you can see that polygamy happens and polygamy just means multiple wives, men marrying many wives. you got polyamory, which is like this communal marriage, more than two people within a marriage. Um, you see these abuses within slave and master contexts where there's no marriage there, but um, they're acting as if they're married. And the Bible is really a stunningly honest book uh, because if you see, you read about Joseph, remember Joseph, same book as Genesis, he's expected as a slave, uh, you know, to perform certain deeds with uh, the his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, uh, the king of Israel, the kings of Israel, they should have known better, but what do they do? Almost every single one of them, multiple wives, should have known. Read Genesis 2 again, fellas. Um, kings of Israel um, messed up, we see in the book of Genesis itself, Judah ends up with a prostitute who ends up being his daughter-in-law. It's really messed up. There's actually way more messed up things in the book of Genesis. We're going to just gloss over them. We're not going to gloss over them when we get there. When we get there, we're going to read it, but we're not going to bring it up now because there's children in the room. Um, but G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, Free love is the direct enemy of freedom. It is the most obvious of all the bribes that can be offered to a slave. Fascinating point from Chesterton. The world is all about freedom. Take these drugs, you know, and in, get involved in these certain acts. Don't have any limits. As Doug Wilson says, all the freedom the world wants me to indulge in, I can do in a six by eight prison cell. Is it really freedom? And in a culture addicted to pornography, seen on Netflix TV shows, internet browsers, Instagram pages, forums and blogs, it is not a tool for freedom, but slavery. And we see a culture enslaved, and enslaved to uh, addictions, and uh, the erosion of marriage and the family, the building blocks of human community, it's not a bug, it's a feature. There's a purpose behind it. Eroding these things is eroding God's design, eroding God's health, and turning people into people you can control, people you can um, enslave. And If there's ever been a time that we need to return to Genesis 2, It's now. It's now. To return to marriage. What is marriage and why do we need to learn about marriage? Uh, And so uh, we're going to unpack it in Genesis 2. Uh, We see that it's the original good design of God. It's a community um, of radical commitment, utter vulnerability, unconditional love. It was a community that ultimately every human being longs for. And not necessarily marriage, but we long for a community where we can be known and a community where we can be loved. And in our world, it's almost always out of reach, isn't it? And we always feel like this is the moment when we're gonna get it. You know that some people get really stoked when they visit some new churches and they're like big on community, and sometimes they form these little communes and they live out in the out in the wilderness or something like that. And people come in there expecting to see these amazing communities, and then they go in and they find after a while and the kind of everything settles down, it's just a bunch of sinful people just like them. And every community has problems, and we live in the time where we have these problems. But we will see, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Lord Jesus, we're going to be able to taste community the way God intended it. But that's all we get. That's all we get now is tastes. So, Genesis 2, let's get into our passage. Uh, We're still zoomed in on the sixth day. So, Genesis 2, 18 and 24. The words will be up on the screen. Then the Lord God said... It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, human beings, we, we saw in Genesis 1 were made in the image of God, and we believe because of that, every human being is made equal in value, in dignity, equally loved by God, and significant to God. Uh, mankind was tasked with this. Um, important job of, uh, spreading out, multiplying, taking dominion within the world, subduing the world. Um, and we kind of see that it's, it's this concept of extending the borders, borders of Eden to cover the entire world. And, uh, God has given us this task. Um, and we see at the end of Genesis 1, as, yeah, Genesis 1, we see that it is very good, all that God has made, isn't it? Everything that God sees that he has made has been very good, and yet we get to this section of uh, Genesis, and what do we see? Something is not good. It says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Well, the reason God says this is because we aren't at the end of the sixth day yet. We're not at the end of where he proclaims that all things are very good. And so something isn't right. Adam is alone. Um, And this is my first point. My first point is this. We're made for community. We're made for community. There's no person out there that isn't made for community. Even the most hardcore introvert you know needs community. They need community. And our need for community is not a result of the fall. It's not because sin has entered in. It's not because the world has messed up and so therefore we need community. It was a beautiful part of God's good creation. We're made to be in community. Without this community, Adam cannot fulfill the God-given task set before him. And this, I think, speaks quite clearly to uh, this hyper-individualism we see within our culture, Where and you can see it within the church, because what do people say within the church whenever they're thinking about what they need to be doing with their lives, what they need to be doing? Uh, We expect that God is going to give us a task that we can go out about and do individually. We expect our calling from God to be an individualistic one, that God reveals His will to us individualistically. You know, we set out alone into this world and we do all the tasks that God intended for us, and we don't realize that God equips communities to go out and do His will. Now, we are individuals within these communities, but when you separate everyone into these like little tiny cells that have to go out and do their own task completely separate from the rest then we find ourselves with in a position where the task is impossible why because it's not good for man to be alone so rather than asking what does god want from me ask what does god want from us rather than asking what's god's purpose what's god's purpose for my life how about asking this How is God moving in my community? Where can I be joining what God is doing? Where can I be a part about what's going on here? We wait so long to hear God speak to us individually and say, individually, this is where you need to be. But where is God moving? What is God doing? Go join that. Now, one of the reasons the church is lacking community, I believe, is because it's populated by uh, these individuals who see their calling in these strictly individualistic terms. And I think that's a big problem for us. What would it look like to see yourself as part of a church. You see, some people will just go in and out of churches and it doesn't bother them at all. Not one iota. It doesn't bother them going into a church, out of a the church. There's no loss of relationship. There's no fear for the loss of relationship. What should happen is if that you have to leave a church, it should be the way the Apostle Paul did it when he was standing before the ship. He was about to leave and what happened? They all wept because they knew they would never see each other again. That is a community that loves each other but if you can move from church to church, it probably shows that you haven't gotten involved in that community. If the church is the will of God, and we know from the scriptures that it is God's will to up churches, then serving the church is the quickest way to be operating within the will of God. It is not good for man to be alone. And so if Adam is extending the borders of Eden... Uh, how do we extend the borders of the kingdom in our area? That's the way we should be thinking. How can we extend the borders of God's rule? Ultimately, it is a work of God, but God is gracious because guess what? He lets us join in with Him. It's like a dad and he's out mowing the lawn, and his kid comes on along behind him with a toy lawnmower, and he comes into the mum and he says, "Oh, me and, me and my son mowed the lawn. Who really mowed the lawn? Well, the dad mowed the lawn." We're kind of like that. God's out there doing the work before us and we come up, up alongside him, but ultimately it is God who does the work and we are along alongside him, helping him along the way. Not because he needs help, but because he's gracious enough to offer us um, that ability. And so, can we do this alone? In Genesis 2 emphatically says, no, it is not good for man to be alone. So the task set before him was impossible, and God says he needs a helper fit for him. It's a Hebrew word that's uh, ezer kenegdo." It's a very strange word uh, to pronounce in English, but it's a, it's a helper corresponding to. It literally means, uh, it's kind of like another individual of equal worth that can fulfill this great mandate, this woman of uh, perfect fit. Uh, the word connecto kind of carries this meaning corresponding to or in front of, but also opposite. Now, it's really hard sometimes to capture Hebrew words in English because English doesn't have this wealth of um, meaning just in one word like Hebrew does. Uh, but between uh, it, between the man and the woman, there would be similarities, but also distinctions, opposites. They will be different to each other, but yet well suited, well suited. And so God sets a scene for Adam. And I really love this about the creation narrative because God could have just made a man and a woman at the same time, just like he did with all the other animals and he could have put them together and then he could have moved on. But he sets the scene for the creation of the woman and it was important that Adam realized what a great gift he was about to receive and blessing that God was about to create. And so this is how God sets the scene for Adam. He sits him down, And he brings the animals to him to name them. He brings all the animals to him to name them. We know all the animals were created according to their kinds. And just like the man, it says here that they were created out of the ground. They were created out of the ground. And God turned them into living creatures, similar to the man. And it's helpful to note, we're animals, just like the rest of creation. We are animals, but there's something that distinguishes us from the rest of the animals. And what is that? Image of God. It's the image of God which sets us apart. But we can expect to have a similar design as the rest of the animals in terms of um, you know, our DNA and all those things. We'll, we won't go into it. Uh, but God gives to Adam the authority to name every single living creature that he brings before him. He gives him the authority, and whatever Adam called them, that was their name. It says here, whatever he called them, that was their name. And we can see uh, why God didn't name any of the animals. We saw when God was creating in Genesis 1, what did he do? He would speak and he'd name things and he'd separate things. And when we came to day 5 and day 6, he didn't name anything. He left that for Adam to name. And he brings all these animals to it. And, and we still do this today. We love categorizing stuff. We love naming new species when they come along. We love giving really long Latin names to everything that no one knows how to pronounce. It's it's hilarious, and we see these you know different flora fauna things that we do. I mean, have you guys ever gone and seen like the documentaries for like the deep ocean creatures? It's creepy as. Have you ever seen those creatures? I don't want the job of naming those creatures. Cause I'd be like monster one, monster two, like freaky creature five. It would just they're just messed up. Um, but Adam, you know, he doesn't get to name fish in this passage. He'll get an opportunity to name fish later when he comes to the ocean, but uh, he doesn't get it now. He gets all the land based animals and birds. And so Adam is naming all these creatures and he notices something. What does he notice? They're in twos. They're all coming and they're twos. There's pairs of them. And he begins to realize that he was alone, that he didn't have a helper fit for him, in verse 20. And so God has set this scene for him so that Adam can see what the problem was. Isn't that amazing that God's teaching Adam from the beginning, gently like a father? And this is important for Genesis 3 for when we get there uh, because God is always teaching and he teaches with questions and he teaches with Uh, abject lessons like he has given to Adam before, and he does these same things to us within our life. And if you're wise enough, you'll see the lessons that God is giving to you. He gives very wise lessons. And this leads me to my second point as we get into the creation of the woman. We are all made equal, but we are made different. It was then that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and basically performs the first surgery, first anesthesiology, I don't know how to say it. I hope that's right. Um, And he puts him to sleep and he removes from Adam a rib and stitches him back together. Now, the Hebrew word for rib, fascinatingly, is is a word that's all throughout the Bible. Only gets translated as rib once in Genesis 2. Every other time, it's side. It refers to side. And it shows up all the time. And it's kind of this long-standing tradition that the word here is rib. But... I don't know. Is it rib? It's very weird to translate it only as rib here. But what we do know is that God took bone out of him and he took flesh out of him because we see that later on in this chapter. So whether it was a rib or not, um, he basically took from the side of Adam and created, formed this uh, woman out of the kind of the substance that he finds in Adam. Uh Really fascinating, and I assume rib is probably the best one, because rib's the only bone in the human body that can actually grow back. Another bit of trivia for you. Um, and so uh, he creates this woman, but he uses a different word. Uh, he doesn't use the word that he used when he formed Adam out of, the, um, out of the ground. It says made here, and the ESV will give you a little footnote, and it'll come down and it'll say built. Built. But that doesn't even give you a doesn't give you a good um, understanding of what this word is. It's a Hebrew word banar, and it's used almost exclusively to speak of a master craftsman creating a work of art, like a sculpture or fine woodworking. It's used um, to refer to the building of palaces like Solomon's palace or, or a mighty city. And it's almost always used to refer to a work of luxury, to refer to something that's worthwhile, something that has worth, something that has value to it. And we see that Adam is made from the dust, but the woman is made from Adam. And as uh, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, all people now come from woman. So it's the other way around for all of us. Now, this woman was different to Adam. She was female. He was male. We don't need an anatomy lesson, but we know that there's differences just in the anatomy of both of them. Uh, She is a helper fit, made in the image of God, with self-consciousness, intelligence, spirituality, personality, relationship, emotion, creativity. Just like God had brought out all the other animals to Adam to name, guess what he does with this woman? It says here, he brings the woman to Adam. Why? To name her to name her and he brings to Adam this work of art this beautiful woman this perfect woman places her before him and look at Adam's reaction what does he do he launches into a poem many people think it's a song what does he say this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Look at that. This is at last. It's like he realized that longing, something was missing. He finally finds it. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is actually the first line of poetry, Hebrew poetry, we see in the Bible. So for people who think Genesis 1 is poetry, doesn't really fit with what we know about Genesis uh Hebrew poetry. And so uh, he sees her as bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He can see the similarities, but he notices the difference. And I love how English has perfectly captured what's going on in Hebrew. It doesn't normally do it, but it does here. When he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that, wo- that little extra W-O at the front kind of helps us to remember this story. In Hebrew, it's ish, that means man, and isha, that means woman. And it's a reminder to them every time they hear these words of God's wondrous design and how God created humanity. And it was always God's purpose that uh, marital relations happen between one man and one woman, but within a committed, lifelong covenant. Uh, God is radically uh, pro-sex. He created sex to be enjoyable within the context he designed it for. And uh, some people think God is against this, he is definitely not against this. Some people think it's disgusting, don't talk about it. Or some people think it's just an appetite, like hunger. It is neither of those things. It is something beautiful that God has created. And mankind after the fall kind of basically takes God's design, takes everything that God has made and distorts it and destroys it and, and, uh, and, and basically just makes it into a mockery of what it is. And you can read this throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, they ripped the commitment of holding fast that says, uh, it says in um, at verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Commitment. That lifelong commitment. Hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Humanity takes that holding fast from marriage and introduces divorce. It introduces um, marital relations outside of the covenant bed. They defiled the commitment uh, by betraying spouses and committing adultery. They burned for passions for members of the same gender and defiled the corresponding nature of marriage. They defiled the distinctions between the kinds of animals and had bestiality. We see all throughout human history, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, polygamy, divorce, all the distortions of God's design for marriage. And all of us are almost co-conspirators. Almost all of us have fallen short of this. And as I said at the start of the talk, marriage doesn't come naturally to us at all. And people in the culture are are constantly crying out, monogamy is not normal. It's not natural. Monogamy is not normal. It's not natural. And I kind of have to agree with them anymore. But we can't follow our desires since when does your desires get to dictate what you do? If you followed every single one of your desires, you would be in jail very quickly. We learn very quickly to repress some desires and indulge others. And we somehow feel like in our culture, we get to decide which ones we repress and which ones we indulge in. But don't ever think that society doesn't make you repress desires. It does make you repress desires. And we were made gloriously different. We need to return to God's good design because the destruction of a community happens When you break it down at its most fundamental level. Why do Christians think marriage is the most fundamental building block of society? Genesis 2. We see it is the first society. We are all fallen creatures. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that brings us to our next point. We are all sexually broken. Every single one of us. And now when I say broken, I'm not meaning it like some people mean it. When they're like, oh, I'm just a bit broken, I'm a bit, you know, it's just an accident, it's a mistake. I'm not meaning it like that. I'm meaning broken, messed up, distorted, all of us. There is not a single human being apart from Jesus who has ever walked this earth that was not sexually broken. We are all broken in this way. We are all fallen creatures. None of us function the way God intended us to in this passage. We have lost this. Now we haven't lost it completely. We're made in the image of God and we have foretastes of what God has made here but we are vulnerable and it says here in the last verse, it says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no shame. There was complete and utter vulnerability. We were made to be vulnerable. We were made to be whole. We were made to be vibrant, perfect, loved perfectly and completely known and it's this beautiful picture of this world before sin and yet sinners come in and this is all messed up. This is all jacked up. It's all completely destroyed. Uh, We're no longer free to be ourselves because ultimately we're unlovely. It's easy for people to find fault because there's a lot of faults. We are broken. We're messed up. Uh, We're worried in this world that if people really know who we are, they're not going to love us. And so we hide ourselves from everyone and everyone hides ourselves and we sew together fig leaves and we sew together garments and we protect ourselves from being vulnerable. This is why as Christians, we can't look down on people who are sexually broken. What have we just learned? We're all messed up. we just were just as broken as them. We need Jesus just as much as them. We need forgiveness and the washing of the Holy Spirit and repentance just as much as them. You might be broken in different ways to other people. It doesn't matter. When it comes to temptation and sin, we should not fall into it. And the Bible tells us to resist the devil. It tells us to fight sin and fight temptation. But you know there's one sin it tells you not to fight? Do you know what that sin is? Sexual immorality. It tells you in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Now, if you were training for a fight, I know some of you guys may think that's ridiculous. I would never fight another person in my life. But Let's say you're into MMA, you're boxing, and I'm training you for a fight. And you respect me because I've been fighting for 20 years. Um, I've you know, had people, heavyweight champions. So you know what I have to say is important, and you're thinking about taking a fight. And I say to you, Ah, oh, you know what? You have a good shot at that. Go and take that fight. You'd have fairly good confidence to go into that fight thinking, I'm going to do well. This is going to go well for me. If you another fight came up for you and I said, oh, this is going to be a really tough one. We're going to have to train really hard. I don't know which way this is going to go. You're going to think, get in the gym, work hard, fight well, and give it your best crack because you could win this. But if I said, do not take that fight, he's going to kill you in that ring. What are you going to do? Okay, I won't take that fight then. If you trusted me enough and I knew my stuff enough, and we know we see God infinitely more trustworthy than that coach. And he says to you, flee it. Flee it. Don't fight it. You can't fight it. You can't win. You don't stand a chance. Run from it. Don't test yourself. Uh, we see in uh, Genesis later when Joseph is a slave and he's, um, his master's wife has got the hots for him and she's you know the expectation is if you're a slave, if anyone wants to sleep with you, you have to sleep with them. And what does Joseph do? Well, he's a good Hebrew boy. He knows what he's supposed to be doing and he knows that he's not supposed to be um, involved in that kind of behavior. And so she actually corners him, pulls him into a room and tries to force him into sleeping with her. And what does he do? He flees. He gets out of there. He does what any red-blooded young man needs to do in that situation and head for the door, find the nearest door, run out of that room. Sexual temptation is potent and it is just as potent for men and women. Women are just as susceptible to falling into this as men. And don't believe the lie that says that it's just a male problem. It is not a male problem. You'll be stunned to know the rates of pornography use amongst teenage girls. It is stunning about the the teenage girls I personally know that have been caught up in that. All people are broken, we're all broken, We don't even just need healing from this. We need a new heart. We need something completely different. And this brings me to my fourth point. You guys probably guessed this one. We're made new in Christ. We're made new in Christ. We'll take you to an interesting passage. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is going to be talking to the church in Laodicea. And now the church in Laodicea have this um, kind of tepid swamp that they got their waters from. It was like a spring. And uh, everyone hated drinking the water there because the water was lukewarm. It was that right at that temperature that was gross, right at that temperature that no one liked drinking the water. And so Jesus kind of calls this church a lukewarm church, a church that he wants to spit out of his mouth, vomit out of his mouth. He doesn't want to drink that water. He doesn't want to drink these Christians. Um, And, you know, the Australian church, they're full of lukewarm Christians. They're full of lukewarm Christians. And the problem with lukewarm Christians is this. We can see from this church that they're not even Christians at all. And this is what Jesus has to say about them. And listen to the language in this. Listen to the language in this. For you say, I am rich... I prospered, and I need nothing, not realising that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And a society full of rich Sexually promiscuous people need this passage desperately. The church and Laodicea didn't realize that they were spiritually destitute. They didn't realize they were spiritually blind and naked. And guess what? They went to church on Sunday. And they had no idea, no idea that they were not Christians at all. Jesus says: if you want to have real riches, riches in heaven that will not perish come take my gold, come take my riches. They're not going to spoil, they're not going to fade. If you're too comfortable, come to me. Then he says to this, um, he says if they come to him, they truly come to him, he's going to clothe them to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness. As I said, we're all broken, we all fall short of the glory of God. We cannot, listen, we cannot do any form of community Without a robust knowledge of the gospel, without a knowledge of Jesus and without growth in the gospel. We can't, I mean, think about it. How can we love anyone if we have not first been loved by God? If we have not first found the love of Jesus and reflect the love of Jesus? How can we forgive each other if we're not first given the forgiveness of Jesus? Uh, We see in Romans at the end of it, it says, Welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. We reflect Jesus. We grow up into Jesus. We learn to be like Him. We're conformed into His image. When we have that, then, then you'll be able to do the kind of community you need to do in your marriage, in your family, within your church. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married. Um, we all need the gospel desperately. And if you're struggling with sexual sin, what does He say here? He's basically saying, come to me. Because later in Revelation, He says this, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. If you fall into sin, God will discipline you. Why? Because he loves you. Then listen to this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus stands at the door and knocks to this church. Will the church open the door? Will the church of Laodicea let in the law that they claim to worship? I'll say it again. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married. We need community. We need the church. We're all broken, and we all need help desperately. And that is why the church ultimately is called the family of God. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all here to support each other. Ephesians 5, we're not going to go into it, but it tells us that marriage points to the gospel of Jesus. he redeems and ransoms his bride... Remember, the church is his bride. And only when we understand the length that Jesus went to restore his bride can we understand the length we need to go in order to restore our broken relationships with each other. When we know who Jesus is, can we be vulnerable? Can we be gracious? Can we be forgiving? Can we be long-suffering? Truly, we need all these things to form a functioning community that knows God. We need all these things to form a functioning community that ultimately can push back the chaos and extend the borders of God's kingdom. First thing we do as Christians, sort yourself out first. Come to Jesus. Get your life in order. If you're in a family, get your household in order. If you're in a church, get your church in order and then maybe we can affect this community. But while there's chaos... And while we are struggling and broken and all these, all this sin is uh, creeping into the church, well, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so I said this sermon was about the uh, foundation of marriage, but really it moved well beyond marriage, didn't it? I'm just going to re- quickly recap these four points. Number one, we're made for community. The community flows from that first family and points to that true family the family of God whether you're single or married the most important thing is to be found in God's community honestly it doesn't matter if you're married it's not worth anything if you're not in God's family number 2 we are made equal but different gender is important and tied to your identity in God don't spurn the gender that you were created with the strength of our communication our community story lies in what we have in common but also in our differences according to God's design number 3 we're all broken all broken sexually. So when anyone comes to you and thinks that you're, good, you know, you're a good Christian and they're lost in all this sexual sin, you can just say, hey, man, we're all sexually broken. We all need Jesus. We all need healing. And number four, we're made new in Christ. Jesus restores for us this community, and although we still live in chaos and suffering, and we can see that we need Jesus desperately, without Jesus, there can be no healing. Without him, there can be no true community. Christ returns and puts to right evil and suffering in this world, and we're waiting and longing for that day. And so I'm just going to pray for us. We're going to have one more song, and then we're going to have some discussion questions. Father we know we live in a world of uh, brokenness and wickedness and evil and sin and iniquity that so many people walk away from your design so many people feel like it's okay to do that and Lord we we do not hold marriage as valuable and we step outside of the bounds of what you have allowed for uh, marital relations Lord Father, I just pray for my friends here who are struggling with that. I pray, Lord, that you would um, renew their joy in you. Lord, if they're in a a bad place and struggling and and, um, needing forgiveness, Lord, um, open that door to them and show them that you are always there, willing to forgive and willing to welcome them back. But, Lord, repentance has to happen. And, and Father, I pray for the marriages that are struggling or struggling behind closed doors that need to be reminded of the beauty of that original marriage, Lord. Help them to restore that relationship. Help them to uh, recover that design that you have and help them to move into the design that you have for them individually and then as a marriage. And Father, for those that are single and um Serving the kingdom and serving you, Lord, I just pray that you would help them. If their singleness is an affliction, I pray that you comfort them. Uh, If their singleness is a joy, I pray that you use them all the more for your glory. And Lord, uh, we just thank you that you've created this community, and we pray that you would continue to mature and grow it. Uh, We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.